Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on it. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real, because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we'll discuss the uh, deteriorating uh, or disappearing uh, congressional budget process with a focus on how that's playing out in the current environment. Our guest is Molly Reynolds, Senior Fellow uh, in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution. We'll discuss why Congress doesn't do budgets anymore for the most part. What are the consequences of that? And are, are there any opportunities for improvement? If you have a really good memory, you'll, you'll remember that we discussed this very same topic with Molly about a year, <laughs> about two years ago. Because Congress keeps doing the same thing. Uh, we'll get into that. Steve Robinson, Concord Chief Economist, and Tori Gorman, Concord's Policy Director, both weary veterans from many budget hill fights, uh, join me for the conversation. Molly, welcome, well, or should I say, welcome back to Facing the Future. Thanks. It's good to be back. It, well, so long as Congress keeps uh, having a dysfunctional budget process, we'll keep having you back on the show. <laughs> You know, last time I was looking at it, there was a lame duck session. And the question was, were they going to be able to get something done in the lame duck session uh, by the end of the year? And uh, actually, they did. But the, the interesting twist then was that Congress was shifting. I think the House was shifting over to the Republicans at that point, And there was a lot of tension about, should we do a deal or just shut things down and wait for the Republican, new, Republican majority to come in? So there are always little twists and turns. We're going to go through what distinguishes this year and where we are now. But first, we always talk about the breakdown in the budget process. Ideally, why is it important for Congress to have a budget process? And why do we say that it's broken down? Sure. So I think the purpose of having a predictable, orderly budget process is because it allows Congress to fulfill one of its foremost constitutional responsibilities, which is it holds the power of the purse. And a predictable process, if we followed it, would then also provide federal agencies who actually have to effectuate the spending decisions that Congress makes the sort of steady hand to know you know, this is when we'll know how much money we're getting. This is when we'll expect to get it. Um, this we can decide and plan for how we're going to do that over the course of a year. Um, but when the budget process breaks down, we both um, from the congressional side lose the ability of Congress to exercise that constitutional responsibility. Um, and then from the executive branch side, lose all of all sense of predictability um, and all sense of being able to plan and um, use the resources that um, Congress gives it in a responsible and predictable way. 
Uh, so sort of you put both of those things together and you end up with um, both Congress um, not fulfilling its constitutional responsibilities and also on a day-to-day basis with agencies really um, lacking the ability to plan and to um, to be as responsible as I think we want them to be with the public's resources. Yeah, and it, it, it just, it the process it, it, as it's supposed to work is perfectly logical. Right. So it is supposed to begin with the president kind of telling Congress what he, he wants a budget to look like. That is just the first step in the process. It's also supposed to include the House and the Senate coming together to agree on a concurrent resolution on the budget, which is an overall blueprint. I like to think of that as sort of setting the size of the pie um, for a given year. And then um turning that pie over to the appropriations committees to divide up um, among their various functions, again, in a responsible and predictable way, decide sort of how big of a piece of the pie does the Defense Department get versus how big does the Education Department get. Um, And then Congress is supposed to consider each of those slices of the pie individually so they can really dig into it, make responsible choices about um, programs and accounts. And then that's all supposed to happen before the federal government's fiscal year begins on October 1st, which would give, again, agencies the maximum amount of um, knowledge and foresight into what their resources are going to be for an entire fiscal year. And we are in, at this moment, basically none of that has happened. Um, We, uh, uh, Congress did not adopt a concurrent resolution on the budget. We ostensibly, Congress ostensibly agreed to kind of overall spending level as part of the deal to raise the debt limit um, last uh, May, uh, but pretty immediately after um, that, the Fiscal Responsibility Act was signed into law. Um, it became clear that, at least in the House, some set of Republican members did not actually want to write appropriations bills that reflected that agreement. And then we've sort of gone progressively more off the rails um, since then. And now we're recording this um, approximately two weeks ahead of the first deadline to uh, keep a set of four, or there are four um, spending bills um, uh, that will uh, run out uh, two weeks from now. Well, we'll get uh, get into those those two different deadlines and how that came about. Um, it seems to me that this year has been all about avoiding crises, the uh, not doing any particular work, just avoiding crises. And as you mentioned, the first was most of the year. Well, the first half of the year was spent trying to avoid a debt ceiling crisis. And then since then, we've been trying to avoid a government shutdown. Tori, do you want to uh, pick up on the questioning here? So one of the things that's because we haven't Congress hasn't been able to agree on appropriations for the current fiscal year, we've been operating under something called a continuing resolution. I was wondering if you could explain explain a little bit to the listeners what a CR is and sort of what are the the pros and cons of, of a continuing resolution? You know, is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Sure. So um, as I mentioned earlier, um, ostensibly, Congress is supposed to complete work on the appropriations process before October 1st, which is when the government's fiscal year begins. If and when, um, and now it's always when, it doesn't um, do that. Uh, It can, to sort of keep the lights on, uh, pass what we call a continuing resolution, which generally just keeps things going at the same levels that they were at before. 
uh, I think sort of keeping the lights on is a is a good way um, a good way to think about it. Um, and this is preferable to say a government shutdown. Um, I, I think we would all agree that um, you know if the alternative is that um, federal functions. Uh, cease and uh, Americans who rely on federal government services um, that are funded through the discretionary appropriations process can't access them, um, that that's sort of the worst case scenario. Um, But um, continuing resolutions also aren't a great way to govern. Um, first of all, they um, uh, because they usually operate for just a short period of time. They increase, they add even more uncertainty into the um, into the process. Um, and so, you know, last um, last September, we saw sort of Congress pass one at basically the eleventh hour um, at the very end of September that ran through the middle of November, basically guaranteeing that there was going to be at least one more. Uh, showdown over uh whether to uh to keep the government open and then in the middle of november they passed one that uh they sort of one in two parts that take that is taking us um now into 2024 so they um they create a lot of uncertainty um and then for agencies themselves there are often um a lot of limits on what they can do when they're operating under a cr and um among them they generally can't start new programs that they or new um initiatives that they didn't have going in the previous year and so if you're an agency and you really want to be able to respond to the changing needs of the country and you're really locked in to whatever choices the Congress had made in the previous year, the longer you're operating under a CR, the harder it is for you to have that flexibility to make those changes and make new choices that, you know, reflect the changing needs um, of the country. I'm curious, either I'm ignorant and I don't pay attention much to the news, or this is unusual. I don't see any other developed nation constantly running headlines about, oh, no, the government is going to shut down. Is is that correct? Are we like a, a, a weird outlier here? Uh, yes. I, I am also not aware of other um, countries that have this particular um, uh, budget challenge. Um, one of the reasons why um, I think it is, I'll sort of give two reasons why it's such an acute problem in the U.S. right now. One of them is a structural run, which is a feature of our separation of powers system. And so in a lot of parliamentary systems, um, if the the government sort of moves to bring a budget through parliament and it fails, that's, you know, the downfall of the government. That's sort of they dissolve parliament and they have a they have a new election and like that sort of thing. And so that's not how our system works. You know, we have our fixed term elections and we have the possibility and increasingly the probability of the White House being controlled by one party and one or both houses of Congress being controlled by a different party. And so that kind of structural, um, those structural features of our system are one challenge. And then the other challenge is that in the current moment, this process, the appropriations process, bears so much of our political conflict. Um, and because it bears so much of our political conflict, it uh, is that much more likely to get um, paralyzed by um, by gridlock and polarization. Well, I suspect we'll talk some more about that in the following segments. We have to take our first break. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are discussing the congressional budget process with Molly Reynolds, senior fellow at the in government studies, governance studies at the Brookings Institution. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. 
Corey Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are discussing the congressional budget process and the possibility of a shutdown with Molly Reynolds. She is uh, with uh, at the Brookings Institution, uh, Director of uh, Governance Studies. Molly, one thing that we've talked about is the unusual continuing resolution that we've got going on right now. Congress, usually they have a deadline, and uh, if they don't hit the deadline, the government shuts down. So to get through December, they came up with an innovation that they referred to as a laddered CR, meaning that there are two different shutdown dates. Some programs shut down on January 19th, if they're not funded, and the rest of them, the bulk of them actually, would shut down on February 2nd, which is very appropriate because it is Groundhog Day. <laughs> every, I don't know. If- every conversation I have about this now, someone brings up the idea that the second deadline is on Groundhog Day, and how it's just irresistible. I don't know if somebody Tom did Stapper was not doing or- their job. <laughs> so <laughs> you're right. You're uh, you're right, Bob. That this is um, not conventionally the way that Congress has approached constructing a continuing resolution. Um, I think in some ways it's a Let me say this. I think there's both a sort of substantive reason this is what they did, and there's a political reason. So the substantively, I think it's a little bit of an outgrowth of um, a trend in the appropriations process more generally, which has been to move from consideration of individual bills, recognizing that that's really challenging, that it can be really challenging to build the coalition, especially in the Senate with the presence of the filibuster, to get individual bills um, passed on the Senate floor to these small packages that have multiple bills in them. Um, We refer to them lovingly as minibuses. So this idea of you take three of them or four of them and you put them together and you move that package um, as one. You the, big build- one the big ones, by the way, just to explain the term, are called omnibus. omnibuses. And so the little ones are minibuses. Um, okay. And so I think, in, and so increasingly, we've seen both the House and the Senate sort of make use of these multi-bill minibus packages. Um, and so in some, in recent years, so in some ways, sort of Having a, a two-step or a laddered CR is a little bit, I think, an outgrowth of that. I also think that politically, there was a real demand within the House Republican Conference to avoid having one big bill at the end of this whole process. So um, you mentioned the omnibus, and the the idea of an omnibus has taken on a lot of rhetorical importance. We can talk about kind of why um, some people. So there are there are folks who don't like the idea of voting on everything all at once. They think that um, particularly because sometimes these packages are constructed such that they arrive at the last minute and no one can read the whole thing and no one there's inevitably things in it that you know people don't like and find out about later. Um, but I think increasingly it became kind of a talking point that omnibuses were bad and that Republicans could not they to be different than Democrats when they were in charge, they could not do another omnibus. So there was this question of, well, like, how do we um, how do we how do we do that? Um, And so I think for those kind of political reasons, there 
that helped motivate this choice to sort of separate this into two pieces. And as I understand it, the choice to sort of put the defense bill and the labor um, HHS bill, so the one that um, covers the departments of labor, health and human services and education, which is, um, those are the two largest bills by dollars, put those two together in one of the packages and make that go second um, was a sort of requirement of um, Majority Leader Schumer's to kind of agree to the whole deal is that, you know, they would not, Democrats were not interested in letting Republicans pass a package that had the defense bill first and then kind of walk away from the rest of the process. Um, and so that um, politically is kind of how I understand a little bit of where, how we got to this particular arrangement. Interesting. Well, we'll see how it plays out. Uh, Steve. Yeah, so I, I think everybody agrees that the current process is a mess. Uh, and there have been over the years a number of suggested changes or improvements or whatever. And I just want to get your thoughts. So, I mean, one idea that's been talked about sort of is that, you know, Congress is never able to meet its deadline. It's like it always gets to September uh, 30th and it can't pass all the bills. And they're saying, well, maybe Congress, if, if you just gave them more time. And so the idea would be, well, you would switch to a biennial budget process. So where you would every two years. So when, when Congress meets for two years, the first year they would pass appropriations for that year and the following year. And so you'd at least give them more time. And the idea is that if you funded all the programs for two years, and that would give you one year to maybe do some oversight, and Congress maybe doesn't do enough of that, and this would be a good idea. And of course, the other alternative is, well, we don't, you know, the problem of not passing the bills is that you shut the government down. So the idea is that you would have a automatic CR. And so if you the deadline approached and you hadn't passed all the bills, then a CR would just kick in automatically. And if and when you got the bills passed, you know, then th that would supersede the CR. So, I mean, both of those ideas have been kicked around at various times. And what, what are some of the sort of pluses and minuses of maybe adopting one of those or both of those as, as some sort of reform? Sure. So in the case of the first one, um, biennial budgeting, I think here it's important to distinguish between the possibility of a biennial, basically a biennial budget resolution versus a biennial appropriations bill. Um, and I think there's a lot of merit in the current environment to a biennial budget resolution or some sort of um uh, vehicle that sets the overall discretionary spending levels um, for two years at a time. This is basically how Congress has operated for the last decade plus um, since the passage of the Budget Control Act in 2011. We've basically lived in a world where Congress has reached a series of two-year agreements on the overall spending levels. And while there's lots of things that have gone poorly about the appropriations process in that time. I actually think that has worked reasonably well. And so if we could get to a point where um, we were doing that on a predictable um, calendar, um, as opposed to just sort of on an ad hoc basis, I think there'd be a lot of um, merit to, again, making that sort of first big picture choice about how, um, how much are we going to spend on the defense side of the budget and how much are we going to spend on the non-defense side of the budget and making those choices for two years at a time. I think a challenge of biennial appropriations bills is that you really lose the you lose some flexibility and you lose the ability um, of um, Congress on a regular basis to um, revisit its choices, revisit the needs of the country. Theoretically, you know, you could have supplemental bills, so um, appropriations bills that occur outside the regular appropriations process. As we see right now, doing those as are not. It's not always a walk in the park either. Um, 
<clears throat> we've had this um, ongoing uh, debate about whether we're going to do a supplemental appropriations bill with assistance to Ukraine, to Israel, to um, uh, to Taiwan, and for um, border security for several months now. And that has presented its own challenge. And so I don't um, I'm not sure that sort of relying on kind of supplemental additional appropriations to respond to changing needs is the best way to proceed. Um, and your second question, um, which was about automatic continuing resolutions, I think that um, I certainly see the appeal. I think one challenge there is, um, especially if you are someone who thinks that the federal government should be spending less in terms of the discretionary budget, there's a real attraction to just letting things continue on autopilot. Congress, for all of its strengths, is also a lot like a college freshman who does not act unless it has a deadline and an action-forcing mechanism to do so. And so by um, creating an automatic continuing resolution, I think that would take away some of the energy that Congress needs to um, to get things together um, uh, in the form of a deadline. So, and you see different versions of the automatic CR proposal. Some of them um, sort of let Operations continue um, at current levels for a period, and then there's a, um, a slight cut, um, again, to try and motivate Congress to, to get its act together. I think at the end of the day, the challenges here are political, and they're not um, – we can sort of tinker with the process, tweak the process to try to um, make it work better. But I think fundamentally, what the challenges of the budget process are symptoms um, of broader challenge in the legislative process that have to do with how far apart our parties are this persistent period of narrow majorities and the idea that um, both parties are always looking towards the next election with the thought that they could lose or gain the majority um, uh, at any time and that that really sort of shapes the shapes their incentives for bipartisan cooperation. Yeah, so that actually raises the other issue. I mean, there, there were a couple of hearings in the House uh, last year looking at the idea of a fiscal commission. And one of the members continually said, well, you know, the problem isn't the process, the problem is the people. Now, what exactly he meant by that is subject to interpretation. But I mean, you sort of raised that, that because of the political polarization, I mean, neither side wants to, to give in to the other side. They somehow think that, you know, if they hold out long enough, they'll get what they want. And as a result, it, you know, it seems like almost nothing happens. I mean, how much do you think the whole partisan, you know, gridlock and, and that those polarization, how, how much is that affecting the issue of the, the inability to to for Congress to, to do anything on the budget. Molly, yeah. I think this is going to have to be a cliffhanger because we <laughs> need to take our second break. So when we come back, we'll hear Molly's answer to, is it the process or the people? Uh, but right now you're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, Steve Robinson, Tori Gorman, and I are talking with Molly Reynolds, Senior Fellow in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Steve Robinson, Tori Gorman, and I are discussing the congressional budget process, or what's left of it, with Molly Reynolds, Senior Fellow in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution. And when we took a break, Tor uh, Steve, you had just asked a question, and uh, just to remind our listeners <laughs> briefly what that question was. 
you know, the 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 problem, as Molly was uh, suggesting in the earlier previous episode, uh, is that because of the partisan gridlock, that that members are simply unwilling to compromise. Uh, and then as a result, you can't get anything done on the budget. And I just I just wanted to sort of get your thoughts on, you know, is the problem the process and we need to change the rules or is the problem the people and that no matter what rules we have, until we can find a way to get along on a bipartisan basis, we're going to continue to see these problems. I like to say that Congress's rules aren't magic. They can't force agreement where underlying substantive agreement doesn't exist. And so... I do think that um, the kind of challenges of the current budget process are the symptom of broader challenges in the legislative process. I think that in the current environment, because it's so hard to do other things, but appropriations bills still have this um, uh, must-pass character to them, because if we don't pass them, then the government shuts down, they become the target for so many other political conflicts. And so sometimes I think of this as a game of whack-a-mole. Like you've whacked down all the other moles in the legislative process and the appropriations process is the last one standing. So it's the one that gets sidelined by fights on the House floor about amendments related to culture war issues. And in a, in a different previous world, um, if the House majority party wanted to have those legislative fights, they would have them on something else. But now they only ever happen on the um, on appropriations bills. And so I think in that sense, it really is the the problem is the politics, um, not so much the process. Tori. Yeah, I wanted to ask a, a quick question as long as we're talking about potential solutions and, and maybe ways to, to change the, the, the process. Uh, it seems like every year lately, uh, you know, Congress misses their deadline of passing the 12 appropriations bills by September 30th. But in, for most years, they seem to do a pretty good job of getting it done by December 31st, meaning Christmas is a is a big uh, incentive to get stuff done. Now, not so much this year, but in years past, Christmas has been a, a pretty big deadline for, for getting work done. Do you see any benefits to moving the federal fiscal year instead of running you know, October 1 to September 30th? What if it moved you know, to the tax year, which is you know, January 1, December 31st? Do you think that would improve anything at all? Um, I think it could help. Um, I do, uh, I was talking before about the kind of rhetorical role the omnibus has come to play in these debates. Um, I think it was also pretty clear this year that there was a kind of rhetorical um, uh, there was also some rhetorical power in the idea of, quote, getting jammed by Christmas. So I think that a lot of, at least thinking about where we are right now, um, a lot of it was shaped by the need for Republicans in the House to be able to say, we are not doing an omnibus and we're not getting jammed by Christmas. And so I don't know if if you had asked me this question, uh, you know, a year ago, two years ago, I might have said, yeah, let's try that. Um, maybe give them a couple extra months. Maybe that's... Um, it's not a magic solution, but it might help. Um, right now, even if it would help, I think we have we've like gotten to this place where, again, at least among House Republicans, there's this sort of real rhetorical power in um, avoiding uh, getting jammed by Christmas. I've been wondering if they're going to start talking about getting jammed by Martin Luther King Day, um, but I haven't heard that yet. You mentioned supplementals, and so before we get into some of the um, Potential solutions to the regular appropriations bills. They've got uh, they've got a big fight going on um, over supplemental spending, which um, primarily is uh, directed at uh, Ukraine, uh, Israel, and uh, border security. There are some other things 
there too. And it, it seemed like, you know, the package would be put together that everybody would want these various things. And it was just a matter of sort of negotiating um, uh, the right numbers or something. But uh, it really has, I, I, I confess, it's uh, surprised me that uh, that that supplemental spending bill has been bogged down. Um, do you see that getting resolved before the regular appropriations bills, after the regular appropriations bills, along with as you know, attached to one of these two deadlines? Um, how do you see that playing out? It's a great question. Um, and it's hard to answer because I think there's to some degree a kind of moving target here. Um, <clears throat> I think in terms of kind of why has it why has the supplemental gotten harder to do than um, some people expected? I think a lot of that has to do with the consistent growing opposition, especially in the House Republican Conference, to additional assistance to Ukraine. That when um, Congress was on a bipartisan basis passing um, assistance to Ukraine um, in sort of through 2022, a lot of that was really kind of held a lot of that coalition was really held together by um, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. Um, and over time, uh, sort of McConnell, I think McConnell's sway over um, the his, certainly his conference in the Senate and to some degree um, House Republicans as well on this issue has just um, gotten weaker and weaker. And so I, we saw obviously at the end of September when there was a choice in the Senate over whether to um, approve a continuing resolution that kept the government open um, but didn't have any additional assistance for Ukraine or to try and hold out to get the House to approve assist additional assistance to Ukraine. The Senate Republican conference basically told McConnell, no, we're going to vote for, we're going to vote to keep the government open. Um, it's not worth shutting down the government over um, over Ukraine. And so I think that, that the politics on that have just continued um, to, to change over time. And then um, I think we could debate the wisdom um, of, uh, the Biden administration asking for a supplemental that included um, assistance for uh, border security. Um, they didn't have to do that. They didn't have to sort of try and link the issues in the way that they did. Um, they decided to, um, I think, because they sort of you indicated, Bob, um, maybe thought that they that sort of linking these issues would make it easier to get everything done. But in the end, it's made it harder um, to get things done. And I think there's, it's like I said, it's a sort of a moving target over what role um, border, uh, not just funding um, for operations um, on the southern border, but possible substantial changes to immigration law um, around asylum in particular, what role um, agreement on that might take to unlocking not just the supplemental, but possibly also um, a deal to keep the government open. Yeah, I was looking at that and, and seeing some comments that they wouldn't, you know, they would shut down the government if there wasn't, you know, the the right sort of immigration policy on the Republican side. And uh, and, the, and I was thinking, gee, I thought that that was on the supplemental. Are we talking about? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, I think it is a little bit of um, goalpost moving or perhaps threatened goalpost moving. Um, I think. Um, I saw the same reporting um, that that you did um, coming out of a visit that a sizable uh, block of the House Republican Conference made to um, to the southern border. Um, so does that mean week. that it's off the supplemental and maybe now? And no, <laughs> uh, I mean it's there's sort of just a lot of puzzle pieces to to put together. Um, I. Uh, 
I my guess would be that sort of that stays with the supplemental and the rest of the appropriations process sort of deal making proceeds um, delinked. But it really is um, uh, it's just constant. The situation is quite fluid. So are there any real where we've only got about a minute, uh, two minutes left in, in this segment. But are there are you aware of any negotiations that are going on? around, let's say, the first tranche of bills that need to be passed, the, the, the sort of easier ones that have the deadline of January 19th, you know, we're not so very far away. I mean, are there some serious negotiations going on between the Democrats and Republicans in the House and the Senate on what uh, funding levels those bills should be set at? Yeah, as I understand it, um, we are, at least as of this recording, still like one step back from that. Both um, Leader Schumer and Speaker Johnson are still working to agree on sort of the overall top line levels, as we call them, which is to say, how big is the defense side of the pie? How big is the non-defense side of the pie? This is all complicated by, again, the fact that ostensibly there was an agreement on how big those two pies would be um, that was reached and signed into law last summer. Uh, it was complicated by the fact that there was a quote-unquote side agreement that was not written to the law that would make the pie uh, the pie's a little bit bigger than what was actually in the law. Uh, and so that and then the ensuing drama in the House over the speakership has kind of um, in some ways put us several steps back, if not all the way back to square one, like maybe back to square two. And we're still trying to get out of that spot to actually um, divide up the pie for the rest of the year. Yeah, it doesn't make me real optimistic that uh, something is going to get done. And Speaker Johnson had said no more CRs. I mean, he's kind of put a, a line in the sand. And uh, I don't know if he's going to be able to to hold to that because, like you said, we're, I think we're still a long way off. Things that should have been done, you know, months and months ago, um, they're still arguing about. So anyway, we're going to have to take our final break here. Uh, you're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are talking with Molly Reynolds, Senior Fellow in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution. We're discussing the breakdown in the budget process, and we'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are discussing the breakdown in the budget process and the possibility of a government shutdown sometime later this month, or at least a partial shutdown. Our guest is Molly Reynolds, Senior Fellow in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution. And Tori, let me go to you for a question. Sure. So uh, Christmas vacation is ending for members of Congress. They're coming back to D.C. to start negotiating. Um, there have been some interesting develops, developments over the holidays, though, while they were gone. Um, former Speaker of the House McCarthy vacated his seat early. Uh, we had another a retirement House Republican announced their retirement. And then uh, Congressman Steve Scalise, another House Republican, is seeking medical treatment and won't be back in the, in the House until February sometime. So you put all this together and basically House Republicans are, are operating with a, a one seat majority in the House. Um, Democrats have a, you know, a bare three seat majority in the Senate, but appropriations bills take 60 votes. So they need to pick up nine Republicans over in the Senate. And you've got a Democrat in the White House whose poll numbers 
seem to be sinking daily uh, with uh, external events, that's things that are happening. So my question at this point, and I don't, I don't even know if there's an answer to this, but I find myself scratching my head, you know, who's got the leverage when it comes to deal making and all these negotiations that that we that Congress needs to to complete to get the appropriations process done this year and send money to Israel if they want or send money to the Ukraine or fix the border. You know, all this requires legislation. Who's got the leverage at this point, given these thin, thin, thin majorities and weaknesses on all sides? Yeah, it's a great question. And I'm not sure there's an answer either. Um, I will say that um, even before the House uh, Republican majority started shrinking a little bit further um, with the events that you uh, mentioned, even by the middle of last summer, um, that the House Republican conference um, did not have a lot of leverage because they were having trouble moving their own appropriations bills. Um, we it, They struggled to do that over the summer. They ultimately did it with um, some of them in September, but it was really hard. Um, and it's because that they you know, their majority was slim then, um, and they started sort of losing members variously on the right end or the left end of their of their conference. And so we've reached a point where you sort of combine the fact that it was getting difficult for them to pass the bills, let alone uh, difficult for them to approve the rules for debate. So the sort of procedural motion that comes before the ultimate bill, they were losing votes on those, which never happens to a majority party. That is uh, that is exceedingly rare in the in the modern era. You add in the fact that you have a couple of members on the House Rules Committee, which is the the panel that ultimately sends things to the floor for consideration, who themselves um, were put on that committee as a part of a deal with then Speaker McCarthy to get elected speaker, who are very conservative um, and who have said that they are unwilling to advance some of uh, some of these kinds of compromise measures. And so you get to a point where now. I think things of consequence in the House, um, including a possible deal here, are going to have to move on what we call the suspension calendar. So we're going to have to move potentially with a two-thirds vote in the House. That's how the um, they kept the government open in September. Um, so you sort of combine that with the fact that in the Senate, you need 60 votes. And so what I think we're driving to here is some sort of big bipartisan compromise, though probably not one that anyone is especially excited about. Um, and if I were to say sort of really who has influence, I do think that sort of persistence of a bipartisan uh, kind of core in the Senate that wants to get appropriations bills done, wants more defense spending and is nominally willing to take, you know, at least roughly equivalent non-defense spending to get that done. So this is sort of the what's embodied in um, kind of a, a agreement made by uh, Susan Collins and Patty Murray, who are the um, uh, top appropriators in the Senate. Like, that maybe is where there's still some leverage, but I don't really know is the short answer. It's interesting, though, because I know uh, for the longest time, House members always just used to look at the Senate and bang their heads against the wall about this need to get 60 votes in the Senate to get anything done because you got to end debate, cut out, you know, you got to invoke cloture with 60 votes. I think the House is now getting a test taste of what it's like when you have to work on a bipartisan basis, because if they're going to do anything on the suspension calendar, House Republicans are going to need Democratic support. So they're going to have to write bills that have bipartisan support, just like 
the Democrats in the Senate have to write legislation that gets Republican support. Right. So, yeah, and I mean, this, it's like this now is you, not, you get it. You get it. You understand it. How hard yeah, it is. This is not <laughs> entirely new. So we saw this happen to Paul Ryan a couple of times. We saw it happen to John Boehner a couple of times. Mm-hmm. But um, one kind of structural um, dynamic here is also that as the House has turned over in membership um, on both sides of the aisle, but especially on the Republican um, in the Republican conference, there are frankly um, lots of members in the uh, in the House who were not here for kind of the hold your nose and clean the barn deal making that both Boehner and Ryan ultimately um, had to uh, engage in, where they uh, cooperated with um, with Democrats and no one was especially happy about it. And so to this, um, again, when we think about kind of structural explanations for what we're seeing, some of it also is just that we have this turnover and people don't know how the process was designed to work for better or worse. And they also don't have experience sort of with what it takes to actually avoid the worst possible outcomes. Steve, that that may tee up your big picture question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we were talking earlier about process versus people. And, you know, I, I think this is correct, but I, I've read that it, that a sitting member of Congress is more likely to be defeated in a primary than they are in the general election. And obviously, you know, if the parties are polarized and you're a member of Congress and you're more afraid of, you know, making a deal with the Democrats or making a deal with the Republicans and then getting a primary opponent to challenge you and losing in the primary, it's not conducive for bipartisan cooperation if both parties are afraid of losing their seat to someone from their own party who's more hardcore and who's less willing to compromise. And, you know, I mean, you know, we talk about fixing the budget through budget process, but if the problem really is this partisanship and this unwillingness to compromise, you know, maybe we need to take a step back and say, well, did, can we fix the electoral process? I mean, you know, is there, you know, the gerrymandering, elections, open primaries? I mean, are there things that we could do maybe to make congressional districts more competitive so that members are more willing to compromise and, and work across the aisle? Because that's what the, the majority of the public is is expecting. Yeah, it's a um, it's a great question. I do think it gets to the heart of the issue, which is what are the incentives that members face? to both um, engage in bipartisan deal-making and also um, engage in sort of responsible fiscal decision-making for the medium to long-term. And right now, the incentives are all wrong for both of those things. There are certainly some members who are from competitive districts where they're uh, where being able to claim credit for bipartisan wins um, can't help them electorally. And there are some members who sort of, um, on a principled basis, care about um, the long-term uh, the long-term fiscal situation, but um, certainly the the constant electoral cycle and this dynamic of um, voters rewarding extremism doesn't um, doesn't help. I don't have a great um, I don't have great suggestions about what to do about it. I mean, I think as we start to see some places experiment a little bit with different kinds of electoral systems. So in Maine, for example, in Alaska, where they're using um, variants of ranked choice voting um, uh, in their congressional elections, it'll be really interesting to see kind of how that. Um, that plays out. It is it is not coincidental that um, two of the small number of remaining members of the Blue Dog Caucus in the House, um, one of them is Jared Golden of Maine, one of them is uh, Mary Patola of Alaska. Um, I don't think that's a coincidence. Um, I'm not saying that ranked choice voting is sort of the magic solution. I don't think there are any magic solutions here. Um, but I do think thinking about this question of what are the incentives that members are facing and how can we sort of shape those and um, 
shape them more productively, even around the edges, I think is is the right place to go. We've just got about a minute left. And so you can filibuster this if you want to. Where do you think things are going to come out? And after Groundhog Day, is the government going to be open or closed? Uh, I don't like to make public predictions because I don't <laughs> like to be wrong. But I do. One thing that I always try to keep in mind about the prospects for a government shutdown is that I think for there to be a government shutdown, some faction has to actively want it. Um, it, it is very hard for Congress to sort of stumble into a government shutdown. Um you can get to the point where there's a very short one. If someone, uh, Rand Paul, I'm looking at you, refuses <laughs> to give consent and, you know, you run past the deadline and then it doesn't actually shut down, like that can happen. But for there to be the kind of, say, 36-day long government shutdown that we saw at the end of 2018 and 2019, someone has to want it. And I'm not quite sure that we're at the place right now <clears throat> where someone or a a decisive faction wants a shutdown. Uh, we may get there. We're talking before about this maybe interest from some House Republicans in trying to link the border policy changes to uh, the the regular appropriations process that could do it. But I think unless we unless that emerges, unless a, a faction who's actively agitating for a shutdown um, and sort of has the votes and is willing to to go through with it emerges, um, I tend to think they'll figure it out at the last minute like they generally do. That's not a great way to govern, but it's better than the alternative. Okay, well, we'll leave it there and uh, pick it up again after Groundhog Day. <laughs> You're, you've been listening to Facing the Future. Uh, we've been talking with uh, Molly Reynolds, a uh, senior uh, fellow at the Brookings Institution in Government Governance Studies. Tori Gorman and Steve Robinson, as usual, have been joining me. So, Molly, thanks for your insights. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and I'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future. <laughs>